Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 15. If you're visiting with us today because your mom lives here and you're hoping to stay in the will, I mean, show her some goodwill. We're glad you're here. But I got to tell you my favorite Mother's Day joke. I know some of you have tried to get mom just the exact perfect, obsolete, awesome gift this year that lets her know how she means everything to you. Well, I heard about three boys who did exactly the same thing, three sons. Each was difficult in his own way growing up, but each had become incredibly successful and each wanted their mom to know they were so appreciative for all that she had done to raise them and that she was the primary influence in their prosperity that they were enjoying. Now, they each gave extravagant gifts to their mom without telling the other brother that they were going to do so. Well, a couple of weeks after Mother's Day, they were all three having breakfast together, and one said to the other, Now, I didn't say anything to either one of you, but I have done really, really well this year. And I wanted mom to know she's been the inspiration behind all of it, and so I bought her a 5,000-square-foot house. Well, the second brother said, Well, this is weird. It's been a great year for me, too, and without telling you guys, I bought Mom a Rolls-Royce complete with chauffeur. Well, the third boy said, this is just really, really weird. The market's been really sweet to me this year, and, you know, Mom's eyesight's not very good, and she loves to read Scripture, so I bought her this remarkable parrot. It can absolutely recite the Bible. All she has to do is give book, chapter, and verse, and boom, out pops the Scripture. It took the monks years and years of training to raise up this bird. He is one of a kind. Well, the second brother said, how did you guys do with your gifts? Well, not so well, one said. You know, I, I don't travel much, Mom wrote me. So I rarely use the rolls, and the driver is extremely rude. I may sell the car and driver and go invest in a scooter. <laughs> the older brother said, well, I didn't do much better either. Mom wrote me and said, Milton, I'm a simple woman, and the house you built me is too big. I only live in one room, and i got to clean all the other rooms. I appreciate the thought, but I'm thinking of selling it and getting me a condo. Is that okay? They turned to the youngest brother and said, well, how did you come out with the parrot? And he said, well, I'm not sure. Mom wrote me, Daniel... You know what your mama likes. That chicken was delicious. <laughs> I told you it's my favorite Mother's Day joke. And the brother said, Mom did what? Actually, that's just a lead into my sermon series. Because if you're visiting with us, that's exactly what we're looking at. The same question. God did what? And we're looking at some of the amazing things, some of the, the obscure, wild things that God does in Scripture. He spoke, we saw a couple of weeks ago. He rested. He celebrated. And now we're about to find out he ran. These aren't things that we're, we're seeing that God just did, but we're finding out that these are things that God does. And it's amazing what our God not only did, but is doing. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father. We want to ask your blessing upon this lesson this morning. And I thank you, Father, for all the mothers that you have brought here today. Truly, we do not have to, to think hard and long about what the incarnation is like because we see you in them so often. 
giving of themselves, coming and getting into our lives with us, setting aside comfort and ease and their likes and dislikes and coming and getting in our world. We see you. Father, we thank you so very much for um, not just blessing us with mothers, but blessing us with a father who helps them be the best mothers. We realize we're not the only ones who are honoring moms today. All, all across the globe, brothers and sisters just like us are stopping to say, God, thank you for what you have, have done in these wonderful, wonderful women. Father, we want to join the Holy Lutheran Church, the Holy Cross Lutheran Church, and ask you, Father, to please bless their services this morning as well as ours, that you would speak through their preaching, that you would speak, Father, through their Lord's Supper, and you would speak through their praises as they offer them to you, to giving you all the glory and honor you deserve. God, please take this lesson this morning, transform it, turn this little sack lunch of a lesson into a feast like you did on the seashore so many years ago. Please nurture us, nourish us with it so that when we leave here, we look a little bit more like your son than when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at this great chapter in the Bible, Luke chapter 15, and we began to to see Jesus' response to what Luke calls the murmuring of the Pharisees. The reason for their murmuring, verse 1 tells us, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day could not fathom why in the world he was spending so much time with the obviously sinful people. See, religious leaders just didn't associate with drug dealers and bookies and prostitutes. But Jesus did. And Jesus responds by telling them three parables. And I think they offer us more than just an explanation to the question the Pharisees are asking. I think they reveal the heart of who God is. I think they reveal the things that God values in his heart. And church, I believe if we're going to concern ourselves with what God concerned himself with, we need to understand more than just what he commanded. We need to do our best to get a grip on who he is. And certainly one of you asking, well, why is that so significant? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because, sister, your view of God is going to shape everything about you. It will shape how you read the Bible. It will shape how you treat people who don't agree with you. It will shape how you select a mate. Your view of God is going to shape everything about who you are as a Christian. And so the decision that you make about who this God is that you worship is no small one. There's quite a few metaphors that I think are used to describe God. But the one that I most lean on is simply that of God as Father. And that is the image Jesus most wants us to see here in Luke chapter 15. Now, usually when you deal with the story of the prodigal son, normally you deal with the younger brother and what he's thinking, or you talk about the older brother and what he's thinking. But neither of those are the reason for Christ's telling of these stories. Remember, Jesus is asked, why are you hanging out with people of questionable reputation? And he says, let me tell you about a father. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is to look again inside the head and the heart of this father and ask this question. How does a father feel? And the answer to that question is going to enable me, I think, to gain just a little bit more insight into this mystery and marvel of who God is. And I think it's going to help turn 
maybe some of our understandings and views and feelings of the lost toward the same direction that God feels. Now, I need to do a little background on this idea of father and try to see if I can explain what a radical concept this was when Jesus comes on the scene. The idea of God as father was rare in the Old Testament. You won't find it very often, and when you do, it's usually as him being the originator of Israel. But when we come to the New Testament, you can't help but notice a very obvious change takes place in how God is referred to. Before, he's referred to as the Lord God or the Almighty One, but not so in the New Testament. God is referred to as Father over 250 times. Why? What happens so that what God is rarely called in the Old Testament, now he's practically referred to as that on every single page almost of the New? And here's the answer. Jesus came along. Jesus comes along and he gives us a very new way to look at God. It was Jesus' most common designation for God. Listen to these scriptures. His first words recorded in scripture. Don't you know that I had to be in my father's house? It was a part of his last words that he uttered just before he died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He even teaches us to pray, Abba, Father. And that was shocking. You parents who have older kids remember how when your kids were first learning to talk, they repeated syllables. In their earliest days of communication, they used what linguists call monosyllabic language. Put that one in your pocket. Monosyllabic language. Really, it's very, very simple. It's just a simple repetition of the same syllables. When my girls first called me, Father, they didn't say father, they said da, da, right? And they didn't say mother, they said ma, ma. And what they drank out of was a ba, ba. And that little furry thing that they loved to have in their lap was called a ki, ki, right? That's monosyllabic language. Well, the Hebrew word for father was ab. That's why Abraham is called the father of many nations. Now, knowing that, surely you can guess what a Hebrew baby's first words were for their father. Abba. Abba. And Jesus, by example, teaches us to pray to the Lord God Almighty that way. Folks, that was shocking. Because this revelation came to a culture that didn't even say the name God. If a scribe writes the name, he had to go through a ritual bath just to cleanse himself before he could even put it on paper. And Jesus comes on the scene saying, this God whose name you're afraid to even mention, I call Abba. That was shocking. Now, sometime in your private study of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to go through and see how often that this word Father is used there. Here are some of them. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father Who's in heaven. Pray like this. Our father. Who's in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And then lastly. Which of you when your son asks of you for a fish. Will give him a snake instead. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven. Give those same gifts to those who ask of him. Interesting. Jesus comes on the scene. And his most obvious teaching. Is that we can know God as. Father. Now, before I became one of those, 
I promise you, I did not read these texts in quite the same way. And I certainly didn't teach these lessons in quite the same way. This is a sermon I promise you I could not have preached in quite the same way when I was a baby preacher in Catula, Texas in the 80s. But that all changed when October the 6th, 1988, my youngest daughter, Tabitha, my youngest daughter, (laughs) I can't get this right this morning. Facts and figures are not working. My oldest daughter, Lauren, came into the world. Here she taught me that there is a cost in loving another. It was amazing to me. I had no idea the price that was going to be paid by saying, yeah, let's have some children. But I have just graduated my last child from college, and this next year I get a raise. Even without the elders giving me one. Amen, Don? Yeah, that's what I thought. October the 6th, 1988, my world changed. When 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Elizabeth Lauren Sportsman came into the world. Before that moment, Jimmy Sportsman had been a lot of things, but none of them carried the weight of the instant emotion as did my becoming a father. The nurse said, Dad, do you want to hold your little girl? And with all the intelligence I could muster, I said, I've never felt anything like that so intense in my life, ever. I love my wife intensely, but that's a love that grew over a period of time through dating and through years of being married to her. But all of a sudden, here's this little human being that I've never seen in my life. And a second after she's placed in my arms, I would die for her. I love my family so much it hurts. There's a tribe of Indians in Mexico called the Zotzils. And they call love the pain in the heart. And when the Bible translators went down to Mexico to put their Bible into their language, here's what they did with John 3.16. For God so hurt in his heart for the world that he sent his only son to die for them. Hmm. How does a father feel? Well, when it comes to his children, he loves them so much it hurts. Well, how does that pain manifest itself? Let me give you a couple examples, at least how it's manifested itself in my life. Number one, it comes with the danger of increased freedom. It comes with the danger of increased freedom. Not going to be easy, Josh. Sorry, dude. Cannon is going to, um, to do things that are going to scare the daylights out of you as you try to help him become a little bit more independent. Uh, and go down the road of being his own person. I will never forget the first time Lauren got in a car to be driven by another adult other than her daddy. I was fit to be tied. I told the driver, no speeding, two car lengths of distance at all times, and complete stops at all stop signs. And Gail said, Jimmy, I'll be careful. One of the things that has pained me over the 24 years of raising children has been that angst in your gut when you know I need to give a little bit more freedom here. But with that freedom comes the risk of failure and hurt. Putting my little girl in the care of another adult scared the daylights out of me. But in a way, it was the first steps of this father learning to help her grow up. 
One of the things that pains me about loving my children has been the danger of increased freedom. Another has been the danger of outside influence. Both of my girls are over 22. Tabitha is our youngest. And they're at a stage of their lives now. I really don't control much. I really don't influence as much their environment as I used to when they were much younger. And those that, that saw us raise our children back in Rudosa will tell you that we were pretty heavy-handed when it came to monitoring the environment they were raised in. Pretty strict. But I knew even then there were things I couldn't protect them from. Influences from the outside world that I couldn't keep away from them totally. It pains me to say this, but both of my girls have found out in their own ways there is a far country. And they visited it. And it pains this father's heart. The third reason that it hurts me to be a father is the possibility she will love another more than me. <laughs> For years, I wondered who would come along and take from me the number one place in my girl's heart. Well, I know the jerk's name now. <laughs> Tyler Branham. For about the last year and a half, he's been trying to wrestle that number one position away from me. And you know what? He's won. And on June 1, I'm going to be marrying the both of them. I remember when Tabitha was about eight years old, I came into the house and she was playing wedding with two of her closest friends. She looked vibrant in her aerial blanket veil. And I asked to speak to her and I said, I need to talk with you. She said, yes, sir. Said, you are not to love anybody more than your daddy for the next 30 years. Do you understand me? She said, Dad, I could never love anybody more than you. She so lied. <laughs> I spoke at the ladies' luncheon this last week, and it gave me a great chance to go back into my important daddy stuff file, and I have one. And I pulled this out. It was written probably when she was about seven years old. I love you, Daddy. I never want to go away from you. She so lied. <laughs> There's a price that comes with parenting. There's no such thing as cost-free, anxious-free love. If you're going to love like your father, you'd better be willing to hurt because there is a cost in loving another. Number two, there is a pain in losing each other. I can imagine it's going to be hard walking my child down the aisle in a couple of weeks. But what about when they walk out the door and slam it and say, I am never coming back here. Ever. See, the younger boy in Luke 15 isn't just leaving the farm. He's leaving his father. And how would a father feel when that happened? Well, we're given an insight into how God feels when it happens to him. It's found in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, the Bible says. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. Now, you have to hear the words of a father in those words. 
God's saying, I raised Israel from a baby. I loved them. I cared for them. Not like the false gods. But they were rebellious. They were disobedient. And a father says, when that happens in a child's life, I must discipline them. A good father does. And so that's exactly what God says here in verse 5. Will they not return to Egypt and not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, all right. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. You can hear a parent's sternness in those words, can't you? Even without my inflection. I know those of you who are parents have experienced this. Your little stinkers have been rebellious for the last time, at least in a while. Your patients can't handle it anymore. And so finally, we're going to enforce some boundaries here. Voices raised. Punishments are thought through that fit the crime. And they are delivered. And there is no way you're going to soften. And you walk away for about 30 minutes and you start to soften. About an hour later, you wonder if maybe you were a little bit too harsh. It causes you to check your spirit. What causes that? Can I tell you? Love. That's how a father feels towards his children because in the very next paragraph, here's what he goes on to say. How in the world can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adamah? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. I know you've done this. I know you guys have taken away car keys or you've... you've and still timeouts or whatever it is the consequences for certain actions are. And all of a sudden you soften and you think, well, okay, I'm not going to take your car away for three years. How about three weeks? Okay, three days. We do that because we're in love with them. Yes, we know we need to discipline them. Yes, we know that when they rebel, we've got to set them straight, put them back on the path. But we do it because we love them. And it hurts us to discipline It hurts us to to be stern. We don't want to be that way. Neither does God. That's how a father feels. I heard about a minister's boy who decided to defy his mom and dad and all their values and go his own way. And he'd come home every night drunk. Wouldn't even speak to his parents. Walked straight into his room and fall on his bed in a stupor. The minister said one day he was walking towards the boy's room. And he heard crying from inside. He cracked the door and what he saw was his wife over his boy's bed on her knees. Tears were pouring down her face and she said, He won't let me love him when he's awake. How does the father feel? If you want to love like your father loved, you've got to be willing to experience the price of loving another. You need to be prepared for the pain of losing another. But then lastly... If you want to love like your father, you can't help but dream and anticipate of a life that's lived together. I love how this story ends in verse 17. The whole world, I think, loves how this story ends. 
The prodigal's been to the far country. He's found himself penniless, jobless. He's in a stinky place. And he comes to his senses. Verse 17, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he gets up and he goes to his father. But while he's still a long way off, his father says to him, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And so they began to celebrate. You know the story. But please notice what the story says about the father. Please. When the boy was a long way off, the father saw him. How is that possible? He was looking for him. Because that's what fathers do when their children have gone to the far country. As actively as a father can, who's allowing his child to make their own decisions, he watches from afar. But notice, sister, the boy changes in this story, but the father is constant. The father is consistent in his love for both boys, both the older and the younger. He even goes out to meet them both. We'll see a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks. Interesting, the one person in this story who does not change is the father. He loves his children when they're home, and he loves them when they're in the far country. But I love this. This is really kind of the foundation, the center point of this message. I love that when he sees him, the compassion that just pours out through him, he runs. Now, for us, that may not seem like a big deal. But you need to understand, in Palestine, men did not run. They had to hike up their tunic and expose their wobbly knees. This was not some kind of a physical fitness thing. It was a propriety issue. You just didn't do that. But when your boy's coming home, you throw propriety out the window. Amen? You've seen it happen over and over again when, when we've seen pictures of guys and gals coming back from Desert Storm in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all the different wars where our men have been involved with. And they come home and they, they show you that poignant scene of of the wife meeting the husband or the, or the child wrapping his ar- children wrapping their arms around dad. It gets a little embarrassing. It gets to be a little bit much. But who cares? They certainly don't care. Because when someone comes home, you don't, you don't care who's watching. You just want them to know how glad you are that they made it back safe. The dad runs to him, throws his arms around him, smothers him in kisses. And the boy starts to make his little speech. But there's something that's just right, something that's absolutely on target about a loving father who has no need for speeches when his boys come home. And he stops him short. I'm going to date myself here. But how many of you remember the old song from Tony Orlando and Dawn, 
Oh, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. Oh, come on, fess up. All right. I found out the song is based on true events. I didn't know that. In fact, G.W. Rosenberry was on the train with the young man who was coming home that the song is based on. It happened in the Midwest in the early part of the 1900s. G.W. Rosenberry was a Methodist minister on the train. And in his cabin was a young boy who was acting really, really nervous. He said, son, would you like to talk? I can tell something's really bothering you. And here's the story the boy unfolded. He said, sir, I grew up in this county on a farm. When I was 17, my dad and I had a fist fight. We had never gotten along. But that was the last straw. And when the fight was over, I told my dad, you will never, ever see me on this place again. And I left. He said, that was three years ago. And I haven't seen him since. And I so miss him. So I wrote my mom a letter and I said, Daddy, if I can come home. And if the answer is yes, would you please tie an old rag on the big oak tree out in the front yard? I can see that old oak from the train. And if it's there, great, I'm coming in. But if there's no white rag, I'll just keep going and you'll never see me again. He said, mister, around the bend in these tracks is our farm. And I am too nervous to look. Would you please look for me? So G.W. Rosenberry got up, went over to the window and looked out and said, son, you better come over here. You've got to see this. And he went to the window and what he saw was a sea of white rags. They were all over the old oak. Sheets were on the roof, around the mailbox, covering the fence. They were everywhere. And the last image G.W. had of the boy was of a young man carrying two suitcases up a narrow path to a house as fast as his legs would take him. Because he was home. The Pharisees ask, why are you hanging out with these people who are so obviously sinful? Why don't you give up on the losers? Why don't you spend more time with good church folk? And the answer he gives is this is how a father feels when his kids are lost. Because there's no greater feeling than when they come home. What I hope you take away from today's lesson is this. If it needs it, alter your view about God. Because He's your Father. Yes, I know He's Almighty. I know He's the Holy One. I know He's the Everlasting One. But He is all of that and He's Abba. The Bible tells me so. Now, if that sounds too good to be true, then you understand Luke 15. The reason why I'm bringing these lessons is that we struggle to remember this. We struggle to remember people matter that much to God. Jesus' critics didn't struggle with it. Because they didn't believe God could care for people that much. And as long as the church is on this earth, we will occasionally have a believer or two. Who think that membership in the church puts them above non-members. Above the lost. 
And Jesus cries out from Scripture, is that how a father feels? Is that how your father feels? No, sir. Please. Know this about who God is. Because who He is is going to mold and shape everything about your walk with Christ. The great irony of Luke 15, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is that the only boy who sees the Father is the boy who went away from the Father. The boy who stays home might as well have been a thousand miles away because he saw himself, listen to me, as a slave, not as a son. So alter your view of God. He's your Father. Number two, alter your view of sinners. They're just lost children. They're just lost children. Now, I want you to know, understanding that those without Christ are lost children ruins a lot of the sermons that I used to preach. Ruins them. And maybe some of the comments that you've made. Haven't we done a very good job of labeling and finger-pointing to the point that we could say, well, that just goes to show you how lost they are, that they're not responding to all that we're doing in the church and to all these wonderful Christian people walking around. Not good enough. Not good enough. What we're doing in here may not matter at all to most of the people in Kerrville, Texas, who are lost. But our commission is like our Lord's to seek and save them. Amen? And we will if we understand they're lost children. Not just sinners. Under the dirt and under the muck of every prodigal is the image of God and the mark of the Father. And they may be pagans, but listen to me clearly, church, they're not pigs. And it's time we treated them like lost children. Or they may not ever want to come home. If you take Jesus' claim seriously, you're going to have critics who snarl at you just like they snarled at him. Because people do not understand looking at sinners as lost children like God does. Lastly, know that the Father will meet anybody at the altar. I hope you alter your view today because of this message about the Father. I hope you alter your view about the lost. But I hope you know this. God will meet anybody. Anybody at the altar. Pharisees want to know. You're going to keep eating with those people, aren't you? Yeah. And eventually I'm going to die for them. And you. To close this morning, I need to tell you about Christina. She was a prodigal from Portugal. She lived with her mother Maria. Her father died. He died when she was just a baby. Maria could only find work as a maid. She never had much. Just a hut. Just some mats to sleep on. A wood-burning stove. And a very little bit of food. Christina was her daughter and a truly beautiful, beautiful girl. She wanted to go to the big city. But Maria was afraid because she knew she hadn't any skills to provide for herself a living. So one day Maria wakes up and Christina's gone. She knew immediately what had happened. Christina had gone to the big city. And what pained her deeply was the thought of the only way she knew Christina had to make any money to survive on. So Maria went to the bank. She took out all the money that she had. She bought a bus ticket and headed right for the drugstore. Have you ever seen one of those booths where you can go in and get those long list of pictures made, you know, two for a buck or 
four for five dollars or whatever. When she got to the bottom of this change in her pocket, she stopped. And she headed for the big city. For three days, she went to every bar, every nightclub, every cheap motel, any place that could think of that represented the darkness where prostitutes frequented. She put a picture of herself on a mirror, on a wall, or in a phone booth. And when she had no more money, she got back on the bus and she cried all the way home. Three weeks later, Christina came down the steps of a cheap hotel, having spent another night sleeping with a man she couldn't name. And when she got to the bottom of the stairs, there behind the clerk on a bulletin board, she saw the picture of her mama. She asked the clerk for the picture. And she turned it over, and on the back side were these words. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. God will meet anyone at the altar. And I hope for you this morning that's good news. Sin does matter. That's why the price to pay for yours is so high. But I had to end this lesson with a story about a mom. Not just because it's Mother's Day. Because in reality, earthly moms seem to mimic the best of what we see in our Heavenly Father. Men say amen. We see it in you, mom. The best gift that we can give back to our mothers doesn't have a dollar value. But I promise you, it has eternal value. And that is the gift of a relationship with your father. Mom, say amen. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to give gifts to our moms to show them how much we care. That in itself is a blessing. But Father, we thank you for the gift of your son that's made any of today possible. The reason that we, that we sing the reason why we gather together to even hug each other's necks is because you, you gave of yourself to the point that it cost you everything. Everything. And we want to tell you thank you. Thank you for the yellow ribbon of the cross that screams and shouts, I love you this much. Come home. And I pray, Father, this morning that if there are some prodigals who just need to hear that one more time, to know that no matter what they've done, no matter where they've gone, they're welcome, that you'll come running. Father, I pray that, that if they need to run to us this morning, you'll give them the power and the courage to do so. Whatever it was that woke that boy up and said, I don't have to stay here anymore. Would you do that again today? And help one of my brothers or sisters who needs to run to me or one of our elders to run so that we can put our arms around them and cover them, Father, in grace and mercy. And Father, if today you've touched someone who's never become your child, never become your son or daughter, and they're ready to say yes to Jesus Christ because they want to be in on a love like this. They didn't have a father like this, but they want one now and don't want to wait another day to get him. Please, Father, would you encourage them to come find me? And we'll see them baptized into Christ and become a part of this great celebration of new babies.
Because, Father, the best new babies that we can imagine thinking about selling Mother's Day with are those who said yes to Jesus Christ. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this song. Love lifted me. Come if we can be of ministry to you.